0: Did you know that there are record number of Canadians experiencing randomized attacks? And also, did you know that there's a record number of Canadians dying of drug overdoses? The question is, is Canada dying? And that's what we're gonna talk about with my next guest,
1: Aaron Gunn. A clear path forward requires looking back and learning. Good public policy requires human connection. It's a consideration of the facts, applying common sense and innovation. It's urban, it's rural, it's real life. We all have something to contribute. We all have a responsibility to get informed because there's a little piece of Canada in all of us, isn't there? Let's learn on this path together. This is Leaders on the Frontier.
0: The downtown east side of Vancouver is third world. We live in a open prison yard. Why should my kids have to live in
2: that risk and that danger? Other citizens have rights as well. You have a right not to inhale secondhand crystal meth smoke. It's really a case of the inmates running the asylum. What is happening to Canada? A country once considered immune from the most appalling displays of homelessness and chaos has become an epicenter for shocking, violent and at times random attacks. As drug use has burst into the open and a devastating battle with addiction has literally left tens of thousands of Canadians dead. But what is the solution? Do we simply need a so-called safe supply of toxic drugs? Should more provinces follow the lead of BC and decriminalize fentanyl, meth, and cocaine? Or is it time to put victims first, crack down on crime, and get addicts the help and treatment they so desperately need?
3: I hate the word safe supply, because you would probably think it was safe to take. And that's the problem, is that it's not safe. Most people who are using this have never tried drugs before this. Like, it's definitely creating a lot more addicts than there was before.
0: What we're doing now is almost capital punishment in our streets
1: by neglect. This is like the industrialization of addiction. It's as scary as it gets.
0: Aaron Gunn, the producer of that hard-hitting documentary Is Canada Dying? Welcome to our program today.
2: Thank you for having me. It's great to, to be here to chat about these issues.
0: Well, Aaron, speaking of these issues, like you're taking on Two big issues in, in our country today. One is about the whole policy about drugs, drugs, uh, specifically the, the whole idea of safe drug supply. And secondly, you're talking about the issue of criminal changes to how we treat um, offenders in the law. So why did you decide to take on those two big topics, those two big policy areas that are impacting Canadians?
2: Well, I think growing up in in coastal British Columbia, you've seen these issues getting worse and worse. You've seen um, these random violent attacks, which you mentioned. You've seen the homelessness issue get worse and worse, just this general kind of chaos and disorder in our streets and obviously the overdose deaths. Over 2,000 in British Columbia alone last year, dead from drug overdoses. And uh, I really want to know, because uh, I had a feeling that these might all be connected. And the other reason I really set out to make this documentary, uh, as as you obviously know here in BC, it's been almost impossible to challenge the orthodoxy on these issues, this harm reduction or so-called harm reduction orthodoxy that has been in place uh, for my pretty much the whole time. I've been politically active or aware, certainly over the past 20, 25 years. And as somebody who lives here and uh, walks down these streets, uh, you know, to me, it's kind of like, if this is success, what does fa- failure look like? And yet all we hear is a doubling down on the exact same policies or arguments from certain individuals that we haven't gone far enough. And uh, from my perspective, I thought it was time to have an actual debate or discussion about, about these issues. And maybe there's another side to the story and maybe we should explore it.
0: Exactly. Now, Aaron, you use the word orthodoxy. What do you mean by
2: orthodoxy? well i guess so as as it pertains to the harm reduction mhm yeah i think it's it's um well, well it's, it's it's an ideology really i i think it's it's this it's ideology of uh, probably stems from an ideology of a group of people in our society that don't believe in individual agency or individual responsibility or the you know if something happens to an individual, it's always society's fault at large, and, and thus society mm-hmm. should pay the consequences for that, as opposed to the individual absorbing them. So um, I think there is a real uh, ideology or orthodoxy around uh, these kinds of issues. Again, to me, though, uh, I think most Canadians, most British Columbians aren't ide- ideological. Mm-hmm. Um, they just want policies that work, and, and they're busy raising their families and going to work and, and living their lives. And to me, it's just so obvious that over the past 20 years, what we've been doing hasn't been working. And violent crime has been getting out of control. Um, you know, I've, I chatted with, um, only one made it into the video, but a handful of, of mothers whose sons were, were, were murdered by repeat mm-hmm. violent offenders who should have never been out on our streets in the first place. Uh, you see everyday businesses having to deal with the consequences of of prolific offenders that just, you know, it's in the jail one day out out that afternoon and committing the exact same crimes, uh, whether it's shoplifting or vandalism and the businesses that are having to deal with this. And um, and then talking just to the everyday residents who no longer feel safe, whether it's riding the transit systems in Calgary or Toronto, or whether it's walking in parts of downtown Vancouver uh, or smaller cities like Victoria and London and Kelowna. So I, I think it's, it's um, you know, a combination of these issues where this isn't right. Uh, mm-hmm. Clearly the, the interests of criminals and um, certain advocacy groups are being placed ahead of those of everyday taxpaying citizens. And I think there's a general degree of people being fed up. And I don't think it's ideal. I don't think it's left or right. The people that are fighting think it's just normal people that are saying this is this is this is out of control. So that's yeah. uh, those are the issues that I wanted to focus on. And then, of course, with regard to safe supply, um, the the really kind of disturbing fact set that, that you know our government is now fueling the the next wave of this crisis.
0: So so well summarized, Aaron. So I did want to walk through a bit more systematically the the points that you make in the documentary, because it, it is really well done. I do recommend it to people. In fact, it's amazing. Um, as of this date, you've already surpassed 1 million views. Are you surprised by that?
2: Well, I had another documentary before this called Vancouver is Dying, which was mm-hmm. definitely the biggest documentary that I had done. And the question really was after I did Vancouver is Dying, is people reached out to me from across the country and said, you have to come to my city, you know, like insert Canadian city here. The same thing is happening. And maybe it's not as bad as, as Vancouver. Vancouver is still kind of the epicenter of this. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the same criminal justice policies of the federal government, the same um, easy access to opioids and drug policies being pushed by the federal government are in play in most of the country as well, mm-hmm. when you copy and paste the same policies, you get similar results. So uh, that being said, you never know when you put out a video, how it's, how it's going to do. And this was a lot longer than anything I'd done before. Uh, the average, uh, well, I used to mainly do three, four minute videos and then the average documentary, maybe 25 minutes. And, and this is, this is 80 minutes long. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we might normally interview eight or nine people. We interviewed 49 for this, uh, project. So it's um, it was much different in scale and scope. So I wasn't uh, sure how it's going to do, but it's it's um, it's nice to see the the response from Canadians. I mean, it's unfortunate in some degree as well because it, it shows that these problems are very real and impacting people's lives and right. they're looking for mm-hmm. alternatives.
0: On that note, I did want to talk a little bit about the whole phenomenon of random assaults um, in our country and and. And you had mentioned that as of March 23rd um, in Canada, I believe that that was the statistic, they're up by some 32%. It's really quite uh, disturbing. And and so my question is this, what are random assaults? And um, why did you begin the documentary talking about that particular issue?
2: Well, I think random assaults or random murders uh, are, well, to differentiate them are basically our assaults or murders that are, that are random, that aren't targeted. Uh, obviously there's, there's another, there's another issue of, of kind of gang violence and,
1: mm-hmm. and
2: uh, things like that that happen. That's, that's targeted. Uh, that is obviously concerning for its own reasons, but you know, it has less of an impact I think to people's personal safety or, or the average citizen's personal mm-hmm. safety, uh, contrast that with random attacks. And these are people that are just going about their daily lives downtown, and then who are just who are just violently assaulted mm-hmm.
0: innocent so, Canadians
2: innocent Canadians yes and the um, well, why we chose to start the documentary with that is simply I think because it's been in the news a lot and because you know the thesis I think running throughout this whole documentary is that uh, the addictions crisis that is in part currently being fueled by fueled by government policies is leading to a lot of these other externalities hmm. so random violence a lot of that is being driven by drug induced uh, psychosis or mental illnesses that have been been set off by by addiction and drug issues and um you can't you can't separate the two they're connected mm. and you know i talked to police officers obviously there's always been crime and violent crime but these random assaults these people it never used to happen in the, in the, to the way they're happening now, every week there's something there was, you know, a 16 year old, old boy waiting to catch the subway in Toronto. Who's just stabbed to death randomly. It's not like he's getting mugged. he just and, randomly. And, and this him. was
0: the story, uh, Aaron of, of Gabrielle Megalese, as I recall.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So that's, it's one of the ones we started with. There's the, the young father outside of Starbucks, downtown Vancouver on Granville street, that got a lot of attention. There's other people stabbed to death on the SkyTrain in Vancouver, um, buses in Toronto, um, and 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 elsewhere as well. So it's in in Edmonton. There was a very prominent attack of a of a mother and her young son uh, that got randomly attacked and murdered for no reason in broad daylight. And again, these aren't even this isn't like your traditional warped serial killer. These are happening in broad daylight.
0: That is just horrific. I just cannot imagine. The carnage this makes on people's lives and their families, their friends, the whole community, it just sends a trauma wave through, like the consequences of that are hard to wrap one's mind around.
2: Yeah, everyone forgets that there's a cascading, you know, when someone is violently attacked or murdered, especially when they're murdered, there is, um, you know, the the consequence of that ripple throughout families. Uh, ripple-throat communities. So. Yeah, I, I think that's a very good insight
0: as well. So within this context, I, I think, again, what you're doing, and again, this is a marvelous documentary, Aaron, uh, that you and your team have put together, because it's really revealing how the world has changed profoundly, almost behind the scenes. Like our our, our justice system is not what you think it is anymore. And at the same time, Um, the ground has shifted when it comes to drug policy in this country. So I did want to talk more about that. I, I'm, I, you know, I, I think most people realize that the number of Canadians that are overdosing is, is an epidemic, uh, is it as really bad as, as we say it is.
2: I mean, I can't believe it. I mean, it's, it's 6,000 Canadians, mainly young Canadians, uh, sons and daughters, mothers and fathers that overdosed and died last year, preventable deaths. 6,000 people. I mean, it's the population of a, of a small town. And I mean, this is, this is an increase of uh, over a thousand percent from about 15 years ago. It is um, an absolutely shocking number. It should shock the consciousness of, of any Canadian. Over 2,000 of those are in BC, which is even more shocking mm-hmm. from, a, from a per capita perspective.
0: What, what an absolute train wreck and waste of human life.
2: It, it, there's no larger waste of human life happening in, in, in the Western world right now. I mean, it's just, if I remember, uh, not that it's a great comparison, but these, these are young. These are young people. These are people that have their entire lives in front of them. These are people that leave behind family members, um, and that rippling of 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 trauma, um, and sorrow that that goes throughout the communities. And i I remember in our uh, Af- when we were in Afghanistan. Um, I mean, we lost I think 155 Canadians mm-hmm. over around a 10-year commitment. Yes, that's right. Um, which was the largest loss of military life since the Korean War in this country. And every time a body came back, it was it was. Uh, very sad and traumatic for the country. and rightly so. but the to just and put that in perspective, there's six thousand people dying preventable deaths every single year in this country. Uh, this isn't cancer or something that's that's mm-hmm. kind of a fact of life that we're trying to to solve as much as we can. This is just completely preventable. and um it's it's I think says a lot about where society and where our culture's at right now, but it's it's and you're always gonna have some of this, but the the way it's been, turbocharged and exacerbated by our own government and our own government's policies is, is very disturbing. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, I mean, it should, it should be a top issue for, for, for all Canadians, really.
0: So I do want to zero in then on that seminal point about drug policy. We've heard a lot in this country about the claims that somehow uh, policymakers talk about a safe drug supply. Um, what what does that mean? And is
2: it safe? Well, the first thing I'd say is I think it's an oxymoron. I don't think there's there's when it comes to opioids, which is what they're talking about, there is there is no such thing as a as a safe supplier, a safer supply, as some of them are have have now started calling it um, what they're what they are. Well, some activists mean different things, but in general, what they're talking about is the provision of drugs in a uh, from a, from a chemistry perspective that are, that are of, that are pure, I, I guess from like a pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical grade drugs, right? Uh, as, as opposed to
0: being made in someone's basement or something like that.
2: Yeah. Inconsistent and predictable quantities. Now, um, a couple fallacies out there is, is you hear a lot about, you know, the toxic drug crisis and in, in the sense that we have a toxic drug supply. I mean, that's uh-huh. it's, it's so misleading The the drugs themselves. Uh, are toxic. That, that's what it's. It's not there. There isn't like a. The drugs have been contaminated. Right. The fentanyl. Fentanyl will kill most people in very small amounts. Um. If you or I took uh, you know, pure fentanyl, um, we would die. Virtually any amount outside of a very controlled medical setting. So these drugs. It's not that the drugs have been poisoned. The drugs are the poison. So that's right. the first yeah. thing to kind the of drugs wrap. are a problem yeah, the drugs are the problem in the first place and supplying more of them is just going to get you more drug use. Mm-hmm. Now, their argument is that people will be less likely to overdose if they are using drugs that are of a, of a consistent potency, let's say is, is, is maybe the, uh, the, the best term okay. to use. So, so if you're an addict, you might as well take, um, quote, safe drugs
0: uh, and not get something that, that's contaminated in that drug.
2: Yeah, so that's one thing that they're saying. So, so I, when I originally made the documentary, that's what I assume was more of the problem. That's mm. not really the problem. The, the, the bigger thing is that they, they don't know the potency of the fentanyl. So I'll explain. When I started to make out the documentary, I thought most people were dying from fentanyl overdoses because other drugs like cocaine or heroin were being laced with fentanyl. Mm. That is not what's happening. The addicts are addicted to fentanyl and seeking out fentanyl. Now, some of these activists will say that when they're doing fentanyl made in someone's basement, you don't know the exact potency of any given batch. Uh, where obviously, if it's made in like a laboratory by a farm, you, you're better. You understand maybe how many milligrams you're taking mm-hmm. um, a little bit more. But uh, what the Safe Supply Program is specifically doing right now is they're they're handing out something called hydromorphone, which is which is almost a pill form of heroin or a heroin substitute. It so is so an So called opioid. Dillies? So uh, Dillies is short for Dilaudid, which is a brand name uh, of hydromorphone. Mm-hmm. It is a, it's about three times more powerful than, than Oxycontin, to put it in, in perspective, which is obviously what fueled the opioid crisis in the first place and they're being literally handed out like candy on halloween by the federal government across the country so so just
0: uh, to clarify so you're saying the federal government is handing
2: out these drugs to people on mass on mass now you have to um sometimes you get tested sometimes you don't but basically you walk into one of these addiction clinics that's specifically sponsored safe supply clinics sponsored by health canada mm-hmm. which is another story and you say you're addicted to fentanyl and you would like a prescription to so-called safe supply you get the prescription the the geniuses that thought this up in ottawa uh somehow thought that addicts addicted to fentanyl would then instead take these hydromorphone tablets which are notionally safer it's an opioid you can add the overdose on it just as like you can with fentanyl as well um but what they didn't, don't understand is that people that are addicted to fentanyl are addicted to the high that they get from fentanyl. That's why literally they risk their. I mean, they're not stupid. They understand mm-hmm. the risk. They all they know better than anybody the risks of doing fentanyl. Yet they mm-hmm. continue to do it every single day, um, and they're doing it in spite of those risks. And one of the things because it's so risky is you get a incredible, comparatively incredible high, which is what they're seeking. So if you give them a drug that has an inferior high from their perspective, they're not going to use it. Instead, they turn around and sell it to get the money to buy the fentanyl that they actually want. Meanwhile, those drugs that they've sold or traded to their drug dealers onto the black market then need to go find a different home. And these drugs are now being sold on mass uh, university campuses, college campuses and even on high schools.
0: So on that point, Aaron, um, You know, you've alluded to this, this, it's like these policies, these governments are really facilitating the development of the next generation of uh, drug users, really young people. And it's very, very heartbreaking. So we do have a clip from the documentary that we'd like to play now that talks about that a little bit.
2: This is a 16-year-old girl currently in recovery from hydromorphone addiction. When did you first hear about hydromorphone or or what kind of names are people using for it on on campuses? So
3: obviously being young, you don't know too much about what everything's called, what the professional name's for, let's say what it is. So it would be Dilly or Dilaudid and stuff like that. Um, Nobody ever really calls it hydromorphone or anything like that. Um,
2: And when did you first like hear about it? Do you remember? Or when did you first notice people using them or?
3: I'd say when I like, Started grade 10, like beginning of grade 10 till beginning of last year. It almost destroyed my life.
2: Thanks to our own government introducing safe supply drugs like hydromorphone into street circulation, it has now never been cheaper or easier for children to get their hands on highly addictive and deadly opioids. Are people using it, you think, even younger than grade 10?
3: I see 14, 13-year-olds using hydromorphone like sometimes even 12 year olds. It's like, I hate saying it out loud cause it's like, you almost don't want to believe it. Like it doesn't seem real at all, but it's so real. I am now seeing much younger people than I've ever seen in my
1: life. I even had a 15 year old patient who is in grade nine tell me he started when he was in elementary school.
2: And what kind of opioid to do these? It
1: would have been diluted.
2: At the direction of our federal government, hydromorphone has flooded our streets and into the pockets of our children.
0: That was a very moving clip, uh, Aaron, and um, those must have been very difficult interviews for you to
2: undertake. They were. I mean, it, it was uh, when I set out to make this project, I wasn't expecting to end up in that room, interviewing that 16 year old girl it's just, it was like every kind of discovery led to another one. Mm -hmm. And um, it's, it, I mean, it's, it's just, as she says that there's a, there's a fire Purdue pharmaceuticals with, with the mass distribution of Oxycontin created this, this inferno of addiction Mm -hmm. that's been spreading throughout our, our country and has taken tens of thousands of lives in this country alone. And the government's attempting to put it out by pouring kerosene on it.
0: So I did want to shift to the theme of hope. And I one of the things I found very moving within the documentary is you talk about um, uh, the theme of hope, both in terms of individual lives and, and even jurisdictions. And one of them is the province of Alberta, the so-called Alberta model that's known internationally around the world. Um, I was really impressed. I, I didn't have an idea of the how ambitious and the scale of effort going on to deal with this, um, this uh, drug uh, crisis. Can you tell us more about what the Alberta
2: model is? Yeah, so to the extent that we have a, a fork in the road and, and there's a bunch of people that wanna, you know, in British Columbia, the, the, they think the solution is to hand out more drugs. In some cases, the exact same drugs that caused the problem in the first place. In Alberta, they're doing a different approach. It's called the recovery-oriented um, system of care. And that is um, a recovery and treatment based model that places hope at the center of what they're trying to accomplish and works to get these people the help that they need to get them clean off of drugs and to return them to being productive tax paying and law abiding citizens of society once again. And um, the goal there is to build these mini communities. They're building 10 of them. The first one that we toured is already finished. I don't know if it's open yet. It'll be opening very soon. And um, the idea is to build these recovery centers and, you know, with the idea that this is an extension of healthcare and should be accessible to all Albertans. And um, it's already seen the the steps that have already been taken have seen tremendous amount of of success. And and the idea is, I think, to place, you know, on one hand, I, I would say from an overarching perspective, the goal is to make it easier to get into treatment it is to get your next fix so i think it is um it's already i think proving successful um and a big part of it is is also changing a culture because culture is very important and Mm -hmm. in british columbia you've got a situation where you basically told people that this is your lot in life and the government's going to provide you with as much drugs as you need for the rest of your life and here's a hotel room and and here's a lock to close your door and and good luck with everything and uh, in Alberta. Uh, they're going to instead be taking away those drugs and saying, "Here's another option," and helping to guide people through that. Um, again, and this is not just a simple detox program. This is a cohesive um, and very robust treatment uh, facility. And, and another thing is, is I always point out the hypocrisy on this because if you're Justin Trudeau uh, or you're Jagmeet Singh, the two politicians that are the most vocal proponents of this policy, mm-hmm. and one of your kids or family members become addicted to these drugs, the solution for them is not going to be here's some hotel, some, you know, uh crime ridden hotel. And here's a bag of free drugs. Good mm-hmm. luck. But that's not what they're going to get. They're going to get world-class treatment, abstinence-based treatment and recovery and the skills that they need to turn their lives around. Mm-hmm. And that's what they're going to get. But for some reason, these politicians think that for, you know, everybody else in society, working class Canadians, Indigenous Canadians, um, all they need are these, this so-called safe supply of drugs. So <laughs> it's, it's, I think it's, it's hypocrisy at the highest level and um, a really disturbing, uh, disturbing amount of it. Well, well said, Aaron. So thank you so much,
0: Aaron Gunn, the producer of Canada is Dying, the documentary, and I encourage you to watch it. So thank you so much for joining us and for your courage and your leadership.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Thank you for watching Leaders on the Frontier. We're a nonpartisan think tank. We explore ideas, policy, and practical solutions that can make a difference in the lives of Canadians. We do not accept any government funding. We work for you. Thank you for supporting Frontier. Visit FCPP.org to give. While you're there, be sure to check out our latest articles and research. Without open discussion and debate, you're not thinking, nor are you free. Comment below. We'd love for you to join the conversation.